0: The Dominion Podcast? The
1: Dominion Podcast? The Dominion Podcast. (laughs) The Dominion Podcast.
0: There's a very extremely high probability that this pipeline is going to rupture within the next five years of its operation. Now, I hope I'm wrong. I don't think I am.
2: From the Media Co-op and CKUT, this is the Dominion Podcast. I'm David Zinman. On the show today, we're going to be talking about Enbridge's Line 9 pipeline, which runs from Sarnia, Ontario, eastward to Montreal, Quebec. The pipeline runs through 18 separate Indigenous communities, the drinking water for several major cities, sensitive wetlands, and even subway stations. Line 9 was originally commissioned by the first Trudeau government back in 1976. Foreign oil was so expensive at that time that many regions in Canada were experiencing shortages. The pipeline was built to supply eastern Canada with domestic oil from the west. But by the 1990s, Line 9 didn't make sense anymore. Foreign oil was affordable again, and eastern Canada didn't need the western oil. The government let their contract with Enbridge expire and allowed them to reverse the flow so they could start using the pipeline for imported oil. But in 2012, Enbridge decided that they wanted to switch it back. They wanted to start using Line 9 to send tar sands oil and oil from the Bakken fields eastward to Montreal so it could reach overseas markets. They also wanted to increase the amount of oil they were running through the pipeline. So, they applied to the National Energy Board for approval, and they got it. Since December of 2015, Line 9 has been transporting diluted bitumen from the tar sands. And just like in 1976, there was no process of consultation with any of the 18 Indigenous communities. Following the announcement, the Chippewa, the Thames First Nation, one of the communities whose land the pipeline goes through, immediately appealed this decision in federal court, and the court ruled against them. After another appeal, the Supreme Court of Canada heard the case on November 30th. The media co-op's Daria Machenkova was there, and spoke with Myungan Henry, a Chippewa-The-Thames band counselor and teacher at Conestoga College.
1: Can you describe where we're standing right now?
3: Well, we're standing on the land of the Algonquin Nation in a building called the Supreme Court of Canada.
1: And we're actually standing just outside the doors of where the hearing is taking place. There are lots of people watching Lots of police officers, and just to start things off, do you remember the first time you heard about Line Nine?
3: Yeah, it was roughly about four years ago. Um, started le- hearing about a pipeline because people in Toronto have already been like protesting the line, and uh, I got a call from them to talk about the Line Nine, and um, started learning a lot from there. Become a lot more involved and. Uh, starting fighting it right from day one, and uh, now we're here in court.
1: So since finding out about the pipeline reversal, what has the struggle looked like? How did you get from there to here?
3: There's been so many things that happened since then. Uh, We became interveners in the National Energy Board hearing, and we started uh, building up our legal rights and putting it together in terms of how our rights were infringed and building a case to bring to the court. So our nation became very involved and wanted to do something about it. So we decided to take the legal route. We've uh, been to hearings, we've been to the Federal Court of Appeals, and ultimately lost there. But we have enough information to go to the Supreme Court of Canada, so that's where we're hoping to have a win here.
1: So today's case is focused on Enbridge's decision to start using the pipeline for tar sands bitumen. But from what I understand, it seems like there wasn't actually any consultation when they built the pipeline to begin with.
3: Yes, uh, when the line was put in, we were never consulted. We haven't been consulted on any of those lines. Uh, Union Gas, gas lines uh, that came through, we've never been consulted with that. Hydro One Towers, we've never been consulted with that. So it's becoming a a bit of a pattern. And and now that we've gone through this process, we know our rights and we're going to defend our rights and we're going to deal with all these companies who keep uh, infringing on our traditional territory.
1: In watching the arguments today, I noticed that there wasn't a lot of talk about treaty rights. Why do you think that is?
3: Well, treaty rights uh, get infringed uh, based on their misunderstanding of, of where they land. You know, The water beds that you know, were never included in the treaties are still under aboriginal title rights. So when they bring in treaty rights, they forget to tell you that uh, there's parts of this land that's still not part of those treaties. Uh, We've never uh, ceded our waterbeds, and we're still here to protect them. So they they still have to do some homework on on treaty rights and, and title rights so that they can actually come to court more equipped. Because if they knew that, then we wouldn't be here because we would have that protection there.
1: What do you see as driving that though? I mean, Why do you think that treaty rights aren't present in the national discourse?
3: What what I think about with all these things that are going on is the lack of understanding of Aboriginal people in this country. As a teacher at a college, you know, we're still getting people that don't know what residential schools were about in this country. People don't equate that with things like apartheid, you know, which is definitely a result of a legal process against a nation here. So when I put it all together, energy projects, uh, lack of understanding, treaty rights, education is is where I want to take it all. To start teaching our children about the wampum belts and teach people about our rights as the original inhabitants of this land, people will have a better understanding and where we sit in this society as partners. We're partners here.
1: Changing gears a little bit, the fight against this pipeline has been a really long one and I'm wondering what the effect has been on your own life.
3: Well, I actually worked it into my life. Uh, I'm a teacher at Conestoga College and uh, all my students are fully aware of what's going on. Probably more aware than uh, they've ever been on projects that affect our land. You know, so I sit on the uh, advisory council for the Upper Law Society of Canada and I'm bringing it to their attention. So it's not just another project. It's part of my life, and I'm trying to bring other people into it, too.
1: So what happens now? Are there going to be more court dates following this?
3: uh, This is the one and only day uh, at a cost of about $170,000 to come here for one day, and uh, they could take up to six months for a decision.
1: That's a lot of money. How were you able to afford this?
3: Oh, a lot of our allies, you know, realized how important this is. So Uh, There's been fundraisers going on for a couple of years now, and we've been able to raise about $100,000 to this point. It's going to cost us about $500,000, but uh, we're going to continue on fundraising and our allies that have been working so hard for us, collecting funds and helping to pay our legal costs.
1: Has there been discussion about what will happen if the court case fails?
3: Well, you know, I don't want to go there, but uh, we've exhausted our total legal effort if we lose this case. And there's no, no place else to go except for uh, taking matters in our own hands. And uh, civil disobedience is a part of uh, what we need to do because our responsibility to the water doesn't end here. We're based on a decision by Supreme Court justices. It, it's still our spiritual responsibility and we're gonna protect it just like our ancestors sold us to. So we'll see what happens.
1: And before I let you go, for the people listening, is there still a need for donations to cover the legal costs?
3: Yeah, yeah, we're going to continue on with the crowdfunding. Uh, people can go to ChippewasSolidarity.org or donate directly to Chippewas of the Thames First Nation because uh, we still have to uh, do quite a bit more fundraising to cover these costs.
1: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this.
3: Thank you so much. Appreciate it. <laughs>
1: It's not just rich people that own the media.
4: I own my media. I own my media. I, I own, own my, my media. media. I own
2: my media. I own my
4: media.
1: I own my media. The Media Co-op is a grassroots national news network that's owned by its members. Join us today at mediacoop.ca. join
2: This is the Dominion Podcast. I'm David Zinman. When an application is made to the National Energy Board, it sometimes involves a series of semi-public hearings. And while it's now more difficult to do, you can apply to participate in these hearings by being something called an intervener. In your application, you can even ask for funding for specific activities. And so after a Quebec environmental group called Equitair got approved as an intervener in the Y9B hearings, they also got approved for funding for an independent report on Enbridge's proposal. They hired Richard Kuprowitz, who's the president of ACUFAX, a firm specializing in third-party reviews of energy projects. Richard has worked in the energy sector since the 1970s and agreed to speak with me about his report. A few quick jargon notes before we start. The NTSB stands for the National Transportation and Safety Board in the United States. The NEB stands for the National Energy Board. And when we refer specifically to Line 9B versus Line 9A, that's in reference to a decision by Enbridge to break up their pipeline and their application to the National Energy Board so they wouldn't have to go through what's called an environmental assessment. I hope that clarifies things and enjoy the interview. In most of the interviews that I've read, it describes you as having 40 years of experience in the energy sector. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about what that experience was and and how you got to AccuFax.
0: Well, it's actually over 40 years. It, it's amazing as you get over how the years go by <laughs> so fast. Uh, but I've got extensive experience, actually field operational experience and design operational experience, in the three major forms of energy transfer for oil, both production, uh, refining, and uh, pipeline. The bulk of my career has been in pipeline, and ironically enough, I was really involved as a more of a troubleshooter in organizations coming in and investigating figuring out what we need to improve on what was the most cost-effective way to deal with businesses in the last couple decades i spent extensive uh, time in uh, following failure investigations uh, representing usually the public in pipeline safety regulatory development here in the united states
2: and so did you start accufax or how, how did you get to that firm
0: actually i started AcuFax. it's owned by a series of private investors who started the company for me and then um, proceeded along since 99? Accufax has been around now for quite a few years, and I'd like to thank our reputation as we provide neutral, objective evaluation on uh, critical energy infrastructure issues. And I can and have represented parties on, on both sides of the fence, if that's the right way to characterize it. Mm-hmm.
2: And so the reason that I asked you on is because when Enbridge was bringing their proposal for reversing the flow of Line 9B to the National Energy Board, through AccuFax, you actually wrote a study of the proposal. It was, it was pretty detailed.
0: Yeah, I was approached by some parties who asked me if I would be interested in looking at the Line uh, 9B issues in application. Very similar to what I'd done on Line 9A, a project that preceded 9B. And I basically said, okay, given what you're asking, this is how you would approach a, uh, an independent, neutral evaluation of the efforts.
2: Uh, so, so in your report, you found evidence of extensive stress corrosion cracking. And uh, can you explain a bit what this means now that it's being used to transport diluted bitumen? Like, is there an increased risk?
0: Well, I think the simple answer is yes. And for those who are not familiar, stress corrosion cracking is a combination of corrosion and cracking. So it's two types of threats that work together that can accelerate a pipeline to premature failure, usually rupture. A lot of the information to the NEB that is submitted by the pipeline operator in Canada is public record. And so somewhere in all the files, you'll find some information that identifies the number of possible SCC sites on line 9B can look at it and figure out that, like Line 6B, that rupture failed in the Marshall, Michigan, there is extensive SCC cracking threat on Line 9B. That is a major threat of concern on his pipeline.
2: So I actually just want to talk a little bit more about that other line you mentioned, Line 6B, uh, which ruptured in Kalamazoo, Michigan. It was largest onshore oil spill in U.S. history. And is the kind of cracking you found in Line 9 what caused Line 6 to rupture?
0: Yes. And the NTSB has made that pretty clear. If you go back and look at their public records, it's a combination of stress corrosion cracking along with some very severe general corrosion wall loss, which is the actual thinning of the pipe wall. That caused the pipeline to fail at very low stress levels, very low pressures.
2: And, and just talking about, you know, Line 6B, in the report, you include the findings. There is an investigation by, in the U.S., the National Transportation and Safety Board investigating the 6B rupture. And in that report, it criticized Enbridge's rupture detection program. It called it inadequate. It took 17 hours for Enbridge to even identify the rupture.
0: Yeah, and NTSB made it very clear, which is not a surprise, that there were some serious problems with the way Enbridge approached rupture detection. But I can tell you, I've been very clear that the existing Canadian regulations regarding pipeline leak detection are wholly inadequate for rupture detection.
2: So getting back to line 9B, one of the recommendations in your report was that Enbridge do something called a hydrostatic test to ensure the safety of the line, given all the cracking. And What, what exactly is a hydrostatic test?
0: Well, a hydrotest basically is you have to shut a pipeline down. And in this case, in the conversion, they were going to have the line down anyway. You sweep it free of any hydrocarbon, oil, or gas, whatever was in the line. Basically, you're filling it with water and then raising the hydrotest pressure, the pressure underwater, to a certain level or levels and taking it to see if it will fail under these higher pressures. For many decades and for many years, especially in Canada, it was the accepted way, the proper hydrotest, a special hydrotest, was the way to test for stress corrosion cracking. It's important to have done this on this pipeline because claims have been made about the ability of another method to assess for stress corrosion tracking, inline inspection tools. Now I need to remind your listeners that the Kalamazoo Line 6B pipeline rupture had run a series of inline inspection tools that failed to adequately identify nor were they properly managed to prevent the pipeline from rupturing at very low stress levels, well below the maximum operating pressure of the pipeline. The only way to test for stress corrosion tracking, unless you can demonstrate publicly why inline inspection is working, is a special form of high pressure, high stress hydro testing. Uh,
2: something that I noticed in the report was that it seemed like the hydro test had been suggested to Embridge, and, and it, they seemed resistant to it. Is that a fair characterization of, of that? Resistance
0: is probably a uh, you're being too generous. Now, to be fair, You know, hydrotesting isn't free, but when I hear people testify, even under oath, that hydrotesting damages pipe, that's false. (laughs) If you don't know what you're doing and you hydrotest the pipeline, yeah, you can do some damage, but the Canadians know how to do proper hydrotesting because it used to be in their regulations. That's been changed in the last couple years, but there should be people in Canada who know how to do proper hydrotesting for stress corrosion cracking without damaging the pipe. Right. Mm-hmm. So from where I stand, someone has made a decision not to do a proper assessment in order to save cost, and so they're running great risk.
2: So did they ever end up running the hydro test?
0: Eventually, they ended up hydro testing three small segments of Line 9B. The reasons for why they chose those three sections and the detailed protocols for the hydro test, I believe, were not made public. I've seen some of those results, and I'm not impressed. <laughs>
2: Something that I was surprised to read was that prior to the reversal, Line 9 had already experienced 35 spills, uh, something that was only made public by uh, investigative reporters at CTV last year. According to the report, since the pipeline was built in the 70s, it's leaked at least 25,000 barrels worth of oil. And, And I was wondering if it's unusual for pipelines to leak this much.
0: Yes. The simple answer. Yes. It does not surprise me that someone's uncovered a fairly high number of releases. Now, in fairness to the pipeline operator, we need more detail, you know, about these releases, okay? <laughs> were they in the pump stations, or were they mainline releases? If they're mainline releases, what were their cause? As to, I think, the, a more fundamental question, does the number surprise me? No. Given my experience, especially in the investigation end of it, covering many different pipeline operations, the fact that it has not been made public in Canada does not surprise me either. Canada needs to be working on more openness and transparency regarding releases. And to have an independent investigator discover these uh, is most embarrassing, but not a surprise.
2: Just sort of wrapping up, how would you say the safety of using Line 9 b for bitumen holds up, like the Enbridge's case for that? And how does it compare to other pipelines you've assessed for similar purposes?
0: So the number of pressure swings in a pipeline, and I won't get into a lot of detail, but it it increases by orders of magnitude when you're running bitumen. And if you have threat cracks like SCC, you need to be paying exceptional attention to your safety approach. We've experienced now some fairly significant pipeline ruptures associated with cracking and running bitumen. The Line 6B in Kalamazoo, Michigan, the Mayflower pipeline failure or rupture. I'm not here to pick on Enbridge or the NEB or the other side. I just don't need any more pipeline investigations where terrible tragedies have occurred that could easily have been prevented.
2: And what do you think the likelihood is that we'll see a rupture?
0: Well, I've been pretty clear. You know, I made the comment without a proper hydro test, specifically focused on the threat of SCC, I indicated there's a high risk of pipeline rupture. I choose those words carefully. I'm not here to create hysteria or panic, but I don't use that term lightly. There's a very extremely high probability that this pipeline is going to rupture within the next five years of its operation. Now I hope I'm wrong. I don't think I am.
2: Richard, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me about this.
0: Glad to be here. Bye-bye.
1: It's not just rich people that own the media.
2: But by leaving out the most important things you need to know,
4: they can elevate awareness to a new all-time low. I own my media. I own my media.
0: I own my media.
2: I own my media.
1: I own my media. I own my media. media. The Media Co-op is a grassroots national news network that's owned by its members.
2: But if it's just left out, can you say the paper lied? A lot of things that happened didn't happen after all. If there's no one in the forest who will put it in the news, I guess that we didn't fall.
1: Join us today at mediacoop.ca join. I'm joining today. You should too.
2: So like we spoke about earlier, Line 9 is currently shipping oil from refineries in Sarnia, Ontario. And these refineries are among over 60 that comprise Canada's Chemical Valley a 15-square-mile area that houses 40% of Canada's petrochemical industry. In the heart of the Chemical Valley, sharing a fence line with companies like Enbridge and Suncor, is Amjanong First Nation, made up of about a 1,000 Anishinaabek people living on reserved land. In December of 2015, shortly after Line 9 began carrying the tar sands oil, several community members took direct action and shut it down. Vanessa Gray, who's an Anishinaabe activist from Anjanang, was one of three people arrested after they chained themselves to a valve station in Sarnia. I spoke with Vanessa about the shutdown and the charges she's now facing. Uh,
4: So I grew up in Anjanang up until I was 10. I didn't think much of it when I was growing up, Um, but I do remember I was aware that the sirens that were placed in my community were there to warn us when something was wrong. And when the sirens went off, we were supposed to go inside and shut off all the ventilations and turn on the radio and wait to hear what to do next. Oftentimes when there's a spill or release in the chemical valley, we have to pay attention to what direction the wind is blowing. Uh, because then we know which way to run the opposite direction.
2: And again, for people who are unfamiliar with this, like what did, what did that mean for you growing up there?
4: I uh, had a hard time with asthma attacks growing up, like taking trips to the emergency room because I had trouble breathing. Using puffers was common for children. Um, for me, my brother, and my sister, and the other kids that we attended daycare with, and since they've closed the daycare that I attended because there was high amounts of benzene in the air, they've opened a new daycare on the other side of the reserve where kids are still homesick because of the emissions from shell now. So there really isn't a better place on the reserve every which direction there is a refinery.
2: And so being so close to these refineries, is, uh, is Line 9 the only pipeline going through Amjana?
4: So Embridge has two pipelines in my area, 6 and 9, and both come through the Chemical Valley. We have seen this type of change to a pipeline fail before, where their 6B pipeline ruptured in the Kalamazoo River where Enbridge has now spent over a billion dollars trying to clean it up because it's just impossible to clean up bitumen once it's released into the air. Uh, We have seen that they didn't respond quick enough to help a nearby trailer park community. It took hours to actually get to the site and then like days to even tell anyone in the area what had happened. And that's kind of a concern with Line 9 because there's a lot of these areas where, where no one is around the pipeline and it could take a long time for them to know when it ruptured and who's directly exposed to it.
2: And so when Enbridge made their proposal to bring tar sands oil through Line 9, were, were folks in Amjanang aware? Like, Was there a public announcement?
4: I mean, no, because I think with Line 9, there's the pipeline talk to learn about because what Enbridge did with Line 9 is instead of bringing the whole pipeline to the National Energy Board as one, they split it up into Part A and Part B to avoid the environmental assessment. The reason why we're upset about Line 9 is that it is allowing the tar sands project to expand and in order to understand how serious this is, people have to understand what the tar sands are and how they're impacting remote Indigenous communities where they're extracted. And I think that's why it took a long time for the Line 9 movement to sort of build up because there's a lot to talk about more than just the reversal.
2: So you're actually in court right now fighting charges from a shutdown of Line 9 from about this time last year when they started using it for the tar sands oil. Could you talk a bit about that action to shut down the mm,
4: I was allegedly involved with a shutdown of Line 9. There were th- actually three shutdowns. The first one was in Montreal. The three individuals broke into the valve site and then turned off the valve and then locked themselves to the valve. I was allegedly in the same situation in Sarnia later on in December, and then another anonymous one happened after that.
2: So we talked earlier on the show about how Line 9 goes through 18 separate indigenous communities. And I think it's notable that the charges that you received are, from my understanding, unprecedented in terms of how harsh it is. So I was wondering what you think is behind this and, and whether you're surprised by it.
4: Uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me in an industry in town, though, that it upsets those type of people to see resistance in a very upfront way. They want to look like they know what they're doing. And then we just got these ridiculous charges with very minimal conditions. It just didn't really add up. It just made like us, activists, the uh, water protectors, the charges just make us look like criminals. Indigenous communities are, you know, not always in the place to continue fighting for our rights as Indigenous peoples. Court things are really expensive and risky when it comes to going against larger industries like Enbridge. And so I think that's why, like, a lot of... Indigenous communities didn't, you know, go any further than going to the National Energy Board and saying that this was not properly consulted. And once they overlook our rights, they can criminalize us for trying to assert our inherent rights to protect the land. And the legal system isn't built for Indigenous people defending their own land. It's a system built on top of our systems that we used here before colonialism.
2: So just before we wrap up, I know the action we were talking about uh, was from about a year ago now. Uh, Where is resistance to Line 9 sitting as of now?
4: Um, I feel like... um Pipeline resistance is kind of a hot topic right now. People are paying attention. Um, we are still going. We know that this pipeline is unsafe. So we are standing behind Chippeza the Thames and their Supreme Court case because they have to win that. Well,
2: Vanessa, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me about this.: Yeah, thank you. So that's the show for this month. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe using any podcast app. Thanks again to Stefan Christoph and DJ Johnny Ripper for the sounds you heard in this episode. The Dominion podcast is recorded in the studios of CKUT in downtown Montreal on occupied Gunnagaga territory. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next month.